Hello and welcome to the Develop Podcast. I'm your host Ben Gilbert and in this podcast I speak with practitioners from across the world, bringing you insight into the international development sector. In this episode we're speaking about ethical storytelling. We're all used to seeing appeals on TV and online from various charities requesting for donations. But these images and stories, how close to reality are they? Are they ethical? Are they helping us to engage in a positive way? Or are they reinforcing stereotypes of people living in poverty? These are all important questions and in this episode I'm speaking with Lucy McRae from The Freedom Story who unpacks the complexities around ethical storytelling in the international development sector. So Lucy, thank you so much for offering to come on this on this podcast and it's great to see you. It would be great if you could just tell us a little bit about you, what you do, where you're based and um, and who you are. Give us a little introduction to yourself. Great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm Lucy. I am based in Chiang Rai in northern Thailand working with an organization called The Freedom Story. My role with Freedom Story is uh, based around kind of measuring our impact, communicating that impact, and helping our team here in Thailand, our Thai team, be as strategic as possible with the use of our resources and um, kind of working in that sense. The mission of the organization is to prevent child trafficking, um, and we do that through education, human rights programming, and then sustainable livelihoods programming to help people kind of alleviate poverty. And I've been doing that with Freedom Story for about three years and um, been in Thailand for five years. Before Freedom Story, I worked with uh, a different organization in Chiang Mai, which is also here in northern Thailand. Um, And then before that, I um, was living in the UK. I am actually half American, half English, which is why my accent is often very difficult for people to place. Um, So I was doing a master's in the UK. And before that, I was studying in Scotland that's kind of what brought me here. Fantastic. Yeah. And so ethical storytelling, I mean, this is something which is, is relevant to any organization, any individual who, who's kind of working in international development, working in trafficking, that sort of sector. Why did it become important for you personally? Could you just give us a little bit of the history of, of how you got involved and why you saw ethical storytelling as something that you really wanted to, to dig into? Absolutely. So um, for me personally, I would say there were two main moments that contributed to my beginning of my interest with ethical storytelling. The first was when I was doing my master's. I had a class and we were looking at um, underfunded humanitarian emergencies and how a lot of humanitarian emergencies that are underfunded are underfunded because of media presence uh, or media coverage. And I thought that that was really interesting, you know, that idea that funding is not really tied to need. It's kind of tied to how something is presented. And we looked at the um, history of development storytelling, you know, starting from sort of the 60s into like the 80s. And you've got Fano walking around Africa with, you know, a big group of African children into kind of more kind of what would be your Christmas appeals that come through the letterbox. And they've got like a sad looking child. And, and it, that really got me thinking about, oh, this movement of storytelling through the develop through development as an industry hasn't really gone as far as it should and and we can't just say oh it's the media it's the newspapers because really a lot of it is NGOs ourselves pushing a certain type of story 
or a certain type of um, image or, you know, you think of an NGO and you kind of think of sad looking child. And I started, mm -hmm. that started to kind of make me uncomfortable. And then I moved to Thailand um, and my first job in Thailand was really focused on communication. And I was working with a really big organization and it became pretty clear to me that the priorities of people living on the ground are not always aligned with the priorities of the people that are perhaps at the HQ or the home office. I had a situation where it felt like I was looking at the, a story that had happened that we were going to publish and I had met the clients and I had talked to them and I had been to their house and I knew them and I knew their story. And that for me was compelling enough. It was a, it was a story in this instance of child abuse. And, um, and I had written up a story and I had sent it off to the head office and they um, had kind of really just tweaked it. It was all true, but it, it was much more donor facing and it was perhaps a little bit more catchy and a little bit more dramatic, I think, than what I had written. I started to realize that like you have two different priorities. You're facing the constituents and the clients, perhaps if you're on the ground or you're client facing, and then people who are more donor facing or fundraising facing are facing a completely different set of priorities. Um, and I started to think more about how you can align those two priorities in order to serve two very different groups of people best. Um, and then around that time, I actually joined Freedom Story and Freedom Story was pushing through ethical storytelling and kind of launching ethical storytelling itself. Um, now for the organization, uh, ethical storytelling was born out of a documentary that was made by Freedom Story in 2008 when Freedom Story was first founded. Um, and it was a story of a young child who was at risk of trafficking. And it was a very personal story about her and her family and her parents made in a style that you know, if we were to go back and make it now, we wouldn't really make it in that style. Perhaps we wouldn't use the same imagery or the same wording. Um, that student, Kat, became the first Freedom Story student. And when she turned 18, we approached her and asked if we could put her video online for people to see. It had been made into DVDs, um, but we wanted to post it publicly online. And she actually said no, which was amazing because at that point she had been receiving support for about eight years. And so we started this awesome conversation with Kat about, you know, why not? And she started talking about the fact that if you saw that video, just that video, and you didn't know anything else about her, people might jump to the conclusion that she had ended up trafficked. When in reality, by that point, she was at university, she was studying English, she wanted to be a teacher. Her life had progressed so much more beyond this one kind of perhaps single-sided version of the story of her life. And she wanted people to know about that. And so now we kind of use that as a teaching tool to talk about ethical storytelling. I know Kat and she's been a great teacher for a lot of us in this kind of space hearing from her specifically so that's kind of how it came out as the organization and for me personally and, and well done for Kat for saying no because I, I guess that could be quite unusual because you've got the whole power dynamics as well of people who are participating in our programs you know if we ask them to tell if we say can we use your story it's very difficult I assume you know how do they say no you know they just imagine that people would just say yes yes of course use my story because of just because of the yeah. power dynamics involved there we yeah. were so proud of her for for being honest mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you, you talk about the different perspectives you know the one one side we're looking at um, the people that we're working with in communities or people we're, we're working alongside and we get to know through those relationships on the ground then the other mm -hmm. perspective of donor facing or client facing and those two contrasting perspectives what are some of the risks which happen on both sides for an organization telling stories perhaps if it hasn't been done in an ethical way and also for 
people that we're telling the stories about, like Kat and others, what are some of the risks that you've seen um, play out when we don't think through what storytelling can actually do and what harm it can cause? I think that the way you tell your stories has a direct impact on both, you know, your audience. So perhaps your donors or your supporters back in your home country or your supporting countries and and the people whose stories are being told in the countries that you're working in. And the way you tell your stories has a huge impact on those two groups. If organizations are focused on telling stories that are perhaps overly simplistic or that are making the organization the hero, which I think tends to be a really easily utilized trope, you know, a kind of a beginning, middle, and end of mm. this person. You know, Lucy started with Freedom Story and she was in a bad place. Thank goodness for Freedom Story because now she's, um, Freedom Story helped her with this, this, and this, and then now she's doing better. If you rely on that kind of a story, which I think a lot of organizations do, you end up for your supporters providing a very simplistic and very like uh, basic version of your program. When in reality, anyone who's working with people or working in these really complex issues knows that there's various levels of success. Uh, you know, one version of success for us is for when a student graduates from university, and that's amazing. Another version of success is the day that every single one of our students attends school. Um, and if we're not communicating both versions of success with our supporters, they're going to have naturally expectations that we've raised because we've said to them, we've only communicated about students who have graduated from university, for example. Um, so I think there's that aspect of, of that. Um, I also think when you are talking, you know, I work in anti-trafficking at the moment, and I think when you're talking about fighting exploitation, when you are focusing a story only on a person's trauma or using that trauma to raise money for your organization, I think you do run the risk of exploiting them or exploiting that story for the benefit of your organization, depending on how you tell the story. Um, and I think for the people that you're working with or you're walking alongside, there's a similar impact there. They might feel perhaps that that's just a one-sided version of them. You know, they are much more than this history of abuse or history of trauma. They might also feel that, um, you know, we have had examples, for example, if you lift a student up as, a, as an example of success and, and then in the future, if something happens and their situation changes, they may not feel like they can come back and ask for support or they might, the relationship with your organization may have changed. Um, not to mention, I think something that's very easily forgotten, which we deal with all the time working with young people is every single one of our students has social media. <laughs> And so they don't always, but a lot of them follow Freedom Story. So they see what we're posting as an organization. They can see how we are representing them and their communities. And, you know, if we are constantly saying, you know, look at these poor and at-risk children, thank goodness we are here to kind of rescue or save them, then they're going to they're gonna kind of, there's a possibility that they can internalize that um, and that that could have a negative impact on their own kind of self-worth or self-perception, um, which is obviously not at all what we would want to do. Yeah, that's fascinating, Lucy. I mean, I think, you know, you're so right. I think it's so easy to just focus on the successes and almost, in a way, hide away the things that haven't gone right, you know, for the sake of the organization, for the sake of the, the donors who are reading those stories. It's so clear how, how dangerous that can be for, for the organization and especially for the people involved. 
could we just build on that a little bit? Some of the typical pitfalls that we fall into as international development organizations in terms of how we message and how the language that we use. Could you go through some of the things that are very typical in this day and age in the, in the way that we tell stories and um, some, of the, some of the things that you've noticed? Yeah, I would say um, the biggest one is the one that I mentioned, which is kind of the simplification of stories. Um, or the simplification of our communications about our programming. Now, you know, I, we live in the 21st century. Everybody has a short attention span and a hundred other things that they could be doing rather than reading any organization's communications. I remember once getting a training where they said, you know, you're not actually in competition with another organization. You're in competition with the video of the dog riding a skateboard on YouTube for people's attention. And I think that that's very apt, but I think when you tell an overly simplified story, people have an overly simplified understanding. You know, we work in child trafficking and it's a very complex thing that very complex set of problems that put a child at risk of trafficking. And we have to do our work as an organization to try to make it easily understood for, you know, someone who's not an expert or who's not a professional in the field. But I think you, if you tell something that's overly simplified or way too simplified, you really run the risk of just continuing to build on perhaps a perception or an assumption that somebody might already have rather than communicating what is actually true. So I would say that's something that I find, um, you know, the most pressing. And then sort of tied to that is also the sensationalization of stories or telling stories that are sensationalized only telling stories that are perhaps the most dramatic spectrum of the people that you work in. Um, and again, that's just not representing the spectrum of, of the work that you do or the spectrum of success that you have. For Freedom Story, you know, we try to do our best to really communicate about a story of success, but perhaps an ongoing story. You know, and we say we're continuing to, to work with this person in these ways and then invite the supporters you know, into that because obviously a great deal of communications is about fundraising and making sure your supporters who are, who are giving financially or with their time feel connected to your work. But I think there is also a risk there of making the organization too much of a hero. Um, another thing that I see all the time is you know, organization X went in and did this and organization did this and the organization did this. And there's no doubt that any one of us as an organization is providing a lot of um, care and a lot of services to people and improving um, their life in that way. But I think there is a role to be explained about how much the person who, who's in the story, who the story is about, is doing to improve their life themselves. For us, you know, we give scholarships to students. Absolutely, I'm not denying that. But the students are the ones who have to go to school, do their homework, put the effort in to try to develop themselves and improve their life. We're not, we're not doing that for them. And so I think there's a a role to kind of acknowledge what work is being done by the person or you might provide a clean water well but the people are the ones who are perhaps uh, keeping it up or using it regularly or making sure people understand how to use it there's a limit to what the organization itself has done that is so true lucy i think i really like what you're saying about like talking about successes as continual stories and continual journeys rather than they started here and they end here um, and this is the success. And from now on, it's a happy ending because we, we all know that our own lives are not like that. <laughs> you know? So right, why should right. they be for the, the participants who are in our programs? <laughs> it is, it is exactly. a journey. What are some of the steps that we can take to make sure that our stories are more ethical? We're taking those steps in the right direction. Yeah, great question. 
I will just kind of give some examples of what we we tend to do um, and hope that hopefully that's helpful for people. Uh, I really like to think of our communications as, you know, a journey. We're walking along with people and rather than kind of a hit, a one hit wonder, if that makes sense. You know, we hope that people open our emails regularly and that they're communicating or interacting with us on social media regularly or they're attending our, well, nowadays webinars or events. But you know, not everybody's going to be able to do that. But if you kind of mold your communications to be an overarching kind of journey with your supporters, then I think that that's much easier than trying to communicate everything at once, knowing that, you know, you're not going to be able to simplify everything into a 30 second elevator pitch all the time. I, so I think that's one really uh, big piece of advice that I would give to people. Um, another thing I think would be to make sure that you're really engaging with your um, participants in a meaningful way at the beginning of the storytelling process. So not just the identification of, you know, who to interview and whose story to tell, but also making sure that that person understands how the story is going to be used, where the story will be uploaded, um, you know, how many, perhaps if you could estimate how many people might see it, you know, if you have, if you asked me to talk to you about you know, the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And you told me that it was going to go up on a Facebook page that had 3000 people following. My logic for accepting or not accepting would be very different than if your Facebook page had 300,000 people following you. And explaining to people, you know, the impact that telling their story might have on the future and, and keeping that in mind as an organization as well, you know, especially when working with children, but especially when telling a story that might stigmatize somebody in their community or might have an impact down the line, you know, if they're looking for a job or trying to get into university or something like that, then you have to be, you know, extremely careful and really take into account that person's consent in that process. Um, but I do think, you know, explaining the, the scope of what you're going to be doing with the story, as well as, you know, the purpose um, for the storytelling process. And then, you know, doing what you're doing with this podcast, giving that person the ability to kind of check the story to make sure that they feel okay with it. Because, you know, anybody who has interacted with, you know, an interviewer or perhaps a journalist and has said something off the cuff, and then that's what gets printed or that's what gets put out. And you think, oh my goodness, I would hate to be represented in that way. Can also, I think, happen with our participants and, and you as an organization working to kind of support or uplift people, you would hate to do that to them, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. Especially nowadays, you never know when something's going to go viral. Yeah. Like you might put something up and think, oh, we only have 3,000 Facebook followers. And then next thing you know, it's all of a sudden, you know, for exactly. whatever reason, it's gone viral. And millions think, of. Oh, I really wish I had done that differently. <laughs> yeah, millions of views yeah. on YouTube Sorry, or whatever. Ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I was thinking about just as you as you were kind of talking, when it comes to safeguarding with protecting identities, how does that play into the storytelling part? Would you say that identity should always be hidden as default? That's that's always what we do. We always change the name. Um, that's just our kind of standard procedure. Or it, I mean, I imagine it's more complicated than that. But what what's what what advice would you give in terms of safeguarding and, and protection of identity? Yeah, I think um, there definitely are people and organizations that have kind of hard and fast rules about, you know, anybody under the age of 18, we won't show a face, or I know organizations that won't tell stories of anybody under the age of 18. Um, I also know uh, organizations that will use models or um, things like that, with, especially in terms of photography. 
we as an organization uh, kind of have an ongoing conversation about it. It's a little more complicated like what you were saying. We as a prevention, a human trafficking prevention organization have a little bit of an easier time because we're not always working with children who have experienced direct exploitation or direct abuse. I think anytime you're working with a survivor of uh, abuse or exploitation like trafficking or a sexual abuse survivor, then I would say you should obscure their identity because there's so many impacts that that can have for that person within their community in terms of stigma or shame from the community. So having said that, uh, for example, a year ago, I talked to our, our team and I said, I think it would be best if we used all pseudonyms for our students to protect them going forward, even students whose stories don't directly involve you know, abuse or exploitation. Um, and then we published a story and actually I got some really interesting feedback from the student who said, you know, why did you change my name? I, I told you it was okay to use my real name and I'm really proud of where I've come from and, and what I've done and what I've achieved. And I'm, I'm kind of like sad that I can't share that story further on, on Facebook or I feel like I can't because it's not my real name. And I was very humbled <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah, thank you for that feedback. And I actually went back to our team and we kind of came up with a more nuanced um, version of, of when we obscure faces and when we kind of use pseudonyms. And it, basically uh, we will always ask the person um, what they think, but because we work with children and because we um, are aware that, you know, kids can't always make uh, the right decisions because of their brain development, we will take their wishes into consideration. But there are times as an organization that we choose to obscure or use a pseudonym, even when they've said it's okay. Um, we will never go in the opposite direction. We will never say, if someone says to use a pseudonym, use their real name, for example. So we'll never go in that direction, but there are times where, you know, a student might say, oh, it's fine to use their real name or use their real face, and then we will obscure the face or we will change their name, particularly when there's instances of abuse or exploitation. And also, honestly, when uh, parts of the story, I guess the best way to put it are, would be are incriminating. So, for example, if a young child is admitting to sending sexual photos over the internet, you know, technically in some countries that could be like illegal because it's about sort of dealing with child pornography material or child abuse material online. And so we will always protect a student in that sense. And always, you know, our baseline gut check is, are we doing what's best for the student and is in the best interest of that person? We will never reveal a person's HIV status, for example, but we'll always keep that kind of stuff hidden um, or, you know, change a name and change a pseudonym because it's just really important to put the protecting of that person um, ahead of whatever might benefit the organization. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. That's really sound advice. So if I was to look at wanting to tell more ethical storytelling in the way that I, you know, work in development or if I, you know, for our team in, in the Salvation Army to, to look at more resources for this, where do we go? What sort, where, where can we get more resources or more information on ethical storytelling? Uh, we have an ethical storytelling website. So www.ethicalstorytelling.com. And on there we have resources that are both resources that we've created and also resources that we've um, sourced from other organizations, um, kind of best practices, um, things like we have, you know, a media consent form and we have a pledge. So some kind of guiding principles. I think those are um, all really helpful. And actually, if anyone listening has something they'd like to you know, add to the organization, to the website or to the blog, please do, you know, we're very happy 
we want this to be kind of a community of people learning from each other. Um, so I would say that's a great place. We have a podcast as well, webinars. So it's a great place to start. I've also um, recently become involved with a group called um, Dignified Storytelling. Um, and so they're sort of trying to do similar things, learning from organizations and uh, storytellers in the field to kind of source best practices. And I'm hoping, I think they're hoping to have kind of a resource hub as well. So I would say getting involved with them is also, is also great. What I think is really important is to have the conversations as an organization and to set those priorities as an organization. What, mm -hmm. what processes do you want to do? What are your kind of standards and your rules and that kind of thing? Fantastic. Lucy, you, the, what you've just gone through in the last half an hour is like gems of, of knowledge and, and yeah. wisdom. It, it's so useful listening to you. And, and obviously it's personal for you because you've, you know, you've walked through this and you've experienced a lot of it yourself and, and you've kind of seen both sides of, of where we get it right and, and where it hasn't gone right. And I just thank you for your honesty about it and, and helping others in the sector like myself and, and my colleagues just to, to think much more carefully through the, how we message and how we, how we tell people's stories. It's really helpful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been really great. Yeah, I'm happy to hear from anyone if anybody has thoughts or anything to share. Thank you so much for having me. As always, you can find out more information on our website, follow the links in the information we've posted on this episode. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Follow and subscribe for news of upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. Can you hear my roommate using the blender? No, oh, no, carry on. No, that's... Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh no. Well, I was um, going to ask you if you can hear my children outside the other side of the door. No, <laughs> no, I can't at all. So um, that's okay. fine. Yeah, carry um, on.